passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here. I'm normally at our Spencer campus. Uh, it's my privilege to get to share with you this morning. We're continuing our series looking at the importance of our words. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been reminded of Jesus's words um, in Matthew chapter 12 about just how important words are to God. And that's because they reveal to us in a way that few other things can what our hearts are actually like. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, God cares about our words so much because God cares about our hearts so much. And there is this connection between the things that come out of our mouth and what bubbles up out of our hearts. And this morning we're going to be looking at a topic that uh, probably more than, than any other area, at least for me, um, reveals or gives a sobering picture of what our hearts are actually like, and that is grumbling and complaining. Now, I'll, I'll confess I'm a, I'm a world-class world com complainer. Um, I, I think that's actually the reason why I'm preaching this topic this morning. I have a lot of experience when it comes to complaining, and so I'm, I'm preaching from a place of expertise here. Uh, no, I'm, well, that is true, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I have a tendency to complain when it's too cold, which happens every year. I don't know if you realize that. And, and that's the ironic thing is I've lived in the Midwest my entire life, and so it's not like winter is a new phenomenon that I'm experiencing for the first time. I, I also complain about my favorite sports teams not doing as well as I would like, which again is ironic. I've been an Iowa fan my entire life. What makes me think this is the year that they will have a competent offense? I don't know. I also complain about mosquitoes in the summer, although I do think that is legitimate and I will uh, continue to believe that. And while I've gotten better, I still struggle with complaining about other people who are driving too slow when they're in front of me. I complain a lot, but I think people just complain a lot as well. Complaining and grumbling seems to be just a, a part of being human. In fact, a lot of people complaining is a way that we can bond together join together, have something in common, complaining about a common enemy, whether that is another person or a circumstance or a situation we find ourselves in. Of course, complaining and grumbling may not seem like a big deal to us. We might not even call it a sin, but God has an entire different picture of what complaining and grumbling are like. God takes it very, very seriously. Which is why when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he says this, talking about what God did in the Old Testament. He says this, we must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul is looking back at the Old Testament. He's looking at the generation in the wilderness and says that some of them were destroyed, that God put them to death as a form of judgment because of their complaining. In other words, the complaining and grumbling of the people of God against God got so bad that God brought judgments upon them for it. 
Why does God care so much about grumbling? Why does he take this so seriously? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, looking at the topic of complaining and grumbling. Before we do that, I want us to just provi- I want to provide for us a definition of what we mean when we're talking about grumbling according to the scriptures. Hopefully this is something that you will see as we work our way later uh, this morning through Exodus 15, 16, and 17 play itself out. But I just want to lay it out here, define what we mean by grumbling this morning. And here's how I define grumbling according to the Bible. Grumbling is an accusation that says, I don't deserve my circumstances and therefore... God is not to be trusted. Let me say that again. Grumbling is an accusation that says, I do not deserve my circumstances, therefore God cannot or is not to be trusted. Let me break this definition down and and work through the three separate parts. First, we see that grumbling is an accusation. When we complain... We might think that we're just getting something off our chests. We might think that we're just venting and it's relatively harmless. But according to the Bible, every time we complain, we are actually pointing fingers. And what we're going to see is that those fingers are pointed at God. That's what Exodus 15, 16, and 17 reveal. Every time we complain... From the smallest to the greatest, we're actually pointing an accusatory finger toward God. Why do I say that? Why do I say that this is an accusation? Well, that's where the second part of our definition comes into play. It is an accusation against God that says, I do not deserve the circumstances that I find myself in. Now, we might not vocalize that. We might not even consciously think that, but that's really at the heart of our complaining. Every time we are complaining, we are saying the circumstances that I am in are beneath me. Now, perhaps most sobering of all is the third part of this definition where we see that our complaining and grumbling reach a conclusion about God's character. Because the circumstances that I find myself in are beneath me, therefore God is not to be trusted. Our complaints about God or our, our, our complaints are about God, whether we realize it or not, accusing God of not being a very good God. That God should know better. And if he doesn't know better, I certainly know better. And... That's why I shouldn't experience what I am experiencing. And God has failed in regard to my circumstances, and therefore he is not worth trusting. Now significantly, this definition of grumbling and complaining includes all of our grumbling, all of our complaining from the smallest, most minute, all the way to the greatest. It's not just grumbling that is directed toward God. It's also grumbling directed toward other people. Let me give you three examples of how this plays out. First, let's say that you are struggling to make ends meet. 
month after month after month. It seems like there's a new crisis that has to be taken care of. You can never break even, let alone get ahead. And to make matters worse, you're laying in bed one night, you're doom scrolling Facebook instead of going to sleep, and you're looking at the great lives that everyone else has. You just see that one of your neighbors just got back from Florida. They've posted all of these pictures of how amazing their trip was, and something inside you snaps. And in that moment, you cry out to no one in particular, oh, come on, why is my life so hard? This isn't fair. Why can't I ever seem to get ahead? Why do all the bad breaks happen to me and to no one else? Let me give another example. Let's say you have a coworker who drives you crazy. They do the bare minimum at work, and they leave you to pick up all the slack. They actually spend all of their time complaining about other people, about how hard their life is. Ironically, they have no idea how hard they're making your life because of their complaining and their lack of work, their incompetence, their unwillingness to do even the smallest thing. And every night when you get home, you just unload your frustrations on your spouse or a friend and said, I just can't take it anymore. When are they going to finally start doing what they were hired to do? Why do I have to deal with this day in and day out? Or take my complaints about the weather from earlier. It's the middle of January. It is freezing cold. It's dark before I even get off of work. My family is going stir crazy because we can't be outside as much as we want to be. And after one particularly cold day when the wind chill is so cold that your face hurts even being outside, which seems to be like every day in the winter here, I snap and I say, I just can't take this anymore. Why is it so cold here? Can't we just have one day when the wind doesn't hurt my face? In each of these, underneath the surface of our complaint is a heart accusation that says, I don't deserve what I am experiencing. I don't deserve to be struggling to make ends meet. I don't deserve to be surrounded with co bad coworkers or with a job that is a challenge. I don't deserve cold weather. Now, here's where those trying circumstances actually become an accusation. When we grumble and complain, we're not just saying, I don't deserve this. We are also saying, I would have done it better. If I were in charge, I would have made sure that I didn't struggle to make ends meet. If I were in charge, I would have made sure that all my coworkers were just as hardworking and thought the same way as me. If I were in charge, I would make sure the weather wasn't downright miserable. And again, the implication here is an accusation against God, the one who is in charge. Complaining and grumbling is fault-finding with God himself. 
When you complain and grumble, you are in essence looking God in the eyes and saying, I would have done a better job of being God than you. And now we can begin to see why complaining and grumbling matters so much to God because in our complaining, in our grumbling, we are actually declaring to God that God, you are not worth trusting because if you were worth trusting, then I would have a better life than what I currently am experiencing. Whether that is financial stability or a better job, that I had better health, that I had a more convenient drive to work, the programming at my church would fit my preferences better, that I, had, I would have less abrasive co-workers, I'd be able to afford the things that I want to afford, you name it. When we complain, we are saying, God, you gave me a really rotten life. No wonder Grumbling and complaining matter so much to God because at the heart of our grumbling, the heart of our complaining is an accusation, God, that we don't deserve what you are giving to us and you don't deserve to be trusted. That's abundantly clear from the story of Israel in the wilderness. If you look at the Old Testament, you see virtually every single example of the word grumbling in the Old Testament is found in seven chapters, Exodus 15, 16, and 17, and then Numbers 14 through 17. We're going to look at Exodus 15 through 17 this morning. As we're doing, we're going to consider Israel's grumbling. We're going to consider what we can learn from it, and then finally some implications for our own lives. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump in to God's word. Father, I do ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would enable us through your spirit to hear and to respond to your word. We ask that you would give us the ability to guard our mouths, that we would see grumbling and complaining for the grave sin that they actually are, not just harmless conversation. God, we would begin to see them as an accusation toward you. We ask that you would strengthen us through your spirit, that you would help us to be people of obedience with our entire lives, including our words. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for the sake of his glory in our lives and in our church. Amen. Exodus 15 through 17 give us a very sobering picture. I want to just kind of set the context for you. God has just saved the people of Israel out of Egypt. The people have seen God's glory and his power on display in the plagues. In the crossing of the Red Sea, they've seen God defeat the Egyptians, prove his glory. He's, they've seen the people, or God, they've seen God save them to the uttermost. And immediately on the heels of this great salvation, we encounter three stories of the people of Israel grumbling in the wilderness. Let's go ahead and look at each in turn. First, grumbling because of bitter water in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So immediately after leaving the Red Sea, Israel sets out into the wilderness. They journey into the wilderness for three days. Each day they don't find water. I want you to imagine what it was like in this moment to be an Israelite. You are on cloud nine. 
You have seen God show up in an incredible way in his victory over the Egyptians, the crossing of the Red Sea. There is nothing that this God cannot do. And then you get into the wilderness. One day, two days, three days. You go further and further into the wilderness. Each day you see your water supplies diminish and you never come across a well or a spring or a lake for you to be able to replenish your water supplies and you begin to get discouraged. You wonder how long is this going to last? Thankfully, on the third day, you at last encounter some water. Imagine the relief. The people of Israel rush to the water in order to drink their fill, in order to refill their water supplies, and yet that relief quickly turns bitter, just like the water. And some of us would say it's better to not hope at all rather than to have hope and then see it to be dashed like this. And this moment is too much for the people of Israel, and they begin to grumble and complain against Moses. And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Moses, in response to Israel's complaining, what does he do? He cries out to God. His response here is instructive. He finds himself in the exact same circumstances as the people of Israel, and yet rather than grumbling, Moses cries out to God. One of the things I think is important to notice or to recognize is that in the Bible, there is a distinction between holy complaining and grumbling. Today, we oftentimes use the words interchangeably. Grumbling and complaining are the same thing. I've actually done that throughout the sermon to this point. And yet, there is a distinction in the scriptures between complaining in a holy way and grumbling against God. Complaining, according to the Bible, is not inherently wrong. It can be wrong, but it is not necessarily wrong. So this is why David, while he's writing in the Psalms, can say this. Give ear to my prayer, O God. And hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. David says the exact same thing or something similar in Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. So David shows us that there is something, there, there is a way that we can complain to God without sinning. And we notice here the heart of David's complaints in these psalms is this radical trust in God. That God is able to change his circumstances. There's a crucial distinction between complaining that accuses God of wrongdoing and complaining that trusts God as the Lord who is able to change our circumstances, address the wrongdoing that we are experiencing. And that second category is what Moses is doing here in Exodus chapter 15. The people of Israel grumble against God. Moses cries out to God. They're both experiencing the exact same circumstances. It's not as though Moses had his secret stash of water. Both are, are desperate for water. The people of Israel say, therefore God is not to be trusted. How could he do this to us? Moses cries out and says, God help us. This is what we are experiencing. And as we see, God intervenes. 
God intervenes and he provides water for the people. Pick up in verse 25 again. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. In light of this event, God reveals that the lack of water and the bitter water of Marah is a test. God wants to see how Israel is going to respond when they are in trying circumstances. Are they going to remain faithful to God? Are they going to cry out to God? Are they going to rely on God? Are they going to ask God to intervene? Are they going to fully trust that God is able to do something to rescue them from this circumstance? This God who delivered them from Egypt, is he still able to deliver them from no water? Or... Are they going to accuse God of not being worthy of their trust? And that's what we see is the people of Israel, they fail this test. The wording here actually reveals how seriously God takes this. Notice again the words of this test. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. The fact that the Israelites grumbled implies that in God's eyes they didn't diligently listen to God, that they didn't do what was right in his eyes, that they didn't give ear to his commandments, that they didn't keep all of his statutes. This passage contains this really sobering reality here, this warning that if they persist, then they will go the same way as the Egyptians. Verse 27, then they came to Elam, there were 12, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. I find the way that this passage ends just absolutely astounding. It's a not so subtle reminder to us of the importance of trusting God, even when we find ourselves in the midst of challenging circumstances. Israel's very next step on their journey in the wilderness is to a paradise, Elam. 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees. Before they even grumbled at Mara about the water, God had already planned for their next step to be the place where he would meet them, where he would provide for them. This reminds us that grumbling is incredibly short-sighted. We can't see the future. We don't know how God is planning to intervene, how he is planning to change our circumstances. We have no idea how God is planning to relieve us of those circumstances. Elam is a not so subtle reminder that God is worth trusting. Because even when you find yourself in the midst of Mara, the bitterness of life, God has a plan to deliver you on his timetable not necessarily on yours. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 16. We see a second story of grumbling here. The first story, Israel grumbles because of bitter water. Here we see they grumble because of a lack of food. Exodus chapter 16 is a very lengthy chapter. We're not going to look at all of it. We're just going to look at the beginning and the end and see how they tie into this test of grumbling. Exodus 16, 
verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Israel leaves Elam. They again enter into the wilderness. Now, notice that this chapter gives us context. It's about a month has gone by since the crossing of the Red Sea or the delivery from Egypt. So verse 1, in other words, is saying that slavery, what that was like, should still be on their minds. They should still be able to remember what that was like, how awful that experience was. What's more, they should still be able to remember what God did in the crossing of the Red Sea, the incredible salvation that he offered to them. Of course, as we all know, should be is not always the same as is. And so the people grumble against God. This time they actually go further than the first time. The first time they just grumbled. This time they say that their situation is so bleak that they would have rather been killed alongside the Egyptians in Egypt because at least there they were able to eat as much bread as they wanted. Out here in the wilderness, though, they don't know where their next meal is going to come from, and they conclude that, Moses, you've just brought us out here in order to kill us from hunger. This is just laughable. It's horrific, too. It's laughably horrific because in essence, they are saying we would rather be slaves. We would rather have the safety of being slaves and die than having to trust God each and every day. I think the sobering thing is we oftentimes think the same thing. We'd rather have slavery to sin and all the comforts and pleasures and so-called safety that comes with that rather than the hard, hard work of trusting God each and every day. Verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they, are, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. God, of course, is gracious. Of course he is. He has saved this people, but he's not going to just let them die in the wilderness. He's also going to take care of them. And so he promises Moses, I'm going to meet their needs. They complained that they had their bread to the, the bread to the full in Egypt. Just they've never seen, they, they haven't seen nothing yet. Watch what I'm about to do. And so that's what happens. Moses and Aaron go back to the people of Israel. Verse 6, so Moses and Aaron said to the pe all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. 
Moses and Aaron say, hey, you know what? God's going to take care of you. He's going to meet your needs in a way that you can't even begin to imagine. But before that, they get to the heart of Israel's grumbling. It isn't ultimately about Moses. It isn't ultimately about Aaron. Instead, it is against God. That's what we saw in our definition of grumbling. It's an accusation. God, we don't deserve the circumstances that you have put us in, and so you cannot be trusted. When we, when we grumble, when we complain, we might direct it at other people. We might say it's about other people, like the people of Israel, they directed it at Moses and Aaron, but, but what we see from Moses getting to the hearts, this isn't about them. It is about God himself saying, God, you're not doing good enough of a job taking care of us. And over the next several verses, we see God does take care of the people of Israel. That's what the bulk of this chapter is about. God does exactly what he has promised to do. He provides meat and bread. That's what we see in verses 9 through 15. After that, we see God give specific instructions to the Israelites on how they are to gather the bread, including what they're supposed to do on the Sabbath. As we might expect, some of the people of Israel decide not to listen to God, and, and we see how that plays out in verses 16 through 30. At the end of the chapter, we get this summary statement that I find absolutely astounding. It reveals what God does, not just for a few days or a few months, but for the next 40 years, day after day after day, how God provides for his people. Notice what it says in verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like water wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan, and Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. I found these verses, especially verse 36, just to be absolutely incredible because day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, the people of Israel had a tangible reminder that God is taking care of them. Every morning, they could wake up and go outside and see, yep, it's another day that God is with us. It's another day that God is taking care of us. Of us. Can you imagine the compounding effect of seeing this over and over and over? Imagine those first few days where you saw God do it once, but then you wake up the next day and you're like, is, is, is he going to do it again? My eyes aren't even open yet and I'm, I'm racked with anxiety. Can God actually be trusted? And then you walk outside and you see again, bread everywhere. As far as you can see, God has provided for you day after day after day. God is meeting you in your doubts. He's faithfully providing for you for the next 40 years, proving his faithfulness to the people of Israel. And that's what makes this next story so atrocious and sad and sobering. 
Because you get to Exodus chapter 17, Israelites are grumbling about a lack of water, and they're grumbling about God not taking care of them regarding water, while God is taking care of them regarding food the exact same day. Every day. God is meeting this need, and the people of Israel are saying, come on, God, where are you here? I can't see you. What are you doing? It's this awful picture of how often we can get tunnel vision. If we would just open our eyes, we would see the faithfulness of God and that he is worthy of our trust. Start in verse one. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So again, they journey into the wilderness and again, they find themselves without water. And again, they complain to Moses, again, complaining uh, or accusing Moses of trying to kill them in the wilderness. Verse four. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So Moses, just as before, cries out to God and God answers that prayer. God intervenes. He provides for his people once again. Notice how the chapter ends in verse seven, or at least this part of the story ends. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Make sure you read the right tone into that question there. This isn't a genuine question. They're not just saying, hey, I wonder if God's here. I wonder if God is with us or not. No, there's a, there's a heart of accusation in that last question. Is God with us or not? If God, if you were with us, life would be different. You'd be taking care of us. You wouldn't make us be thirsty. You wouldn't leave us here in the wilderness to die like you are. God, where are you? Here, in these last verse, we're giving a summary of Israel's grumbling. When they say, God, are you with us? This daily provision of manna is taking place at the exact same time. The answer is right there. God, are you with us? They can look outside and see the manna. Instead, they are so consumed with testing God, grumbling against God, complaining against God. They complain about God, what he is doing. They refuse to acknowledge him. They refuse to trust him. And in their grumbling, they are accusing God, saying to him, we don't deserve our circumstances. God, you cannot be trusted. 
No wonder grumbling and complaining matters so much to God. Grumbling is not a small thing. It's not no big deal. It's an accusation directed at God, toward God, that says, I would make a better God than you would. Because of what I'm experiencing. So just consider four implications of grumbling from these chapters. The first one is this. We've said it. We're going to say it again. Grumbling and complaining ultimately is directed at God. Moses makes that very explicit in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8. You might think that you are complaining about another person. You might think you're complaining about circumstances. But when you grumble and when you complain, you are saying, I wouldn't have done the things that God has done. When I grumble, when I complain, it is a form of arrogance. It is Jordan saying, I could have done it better than you, God. That if I were God, things would actually have worked out. Grumbling, even about other people, is ultimately about God. Because God is the sovereign king over all things, including our trying circumstances. Second, grumbling is rooted in forgetfulness and tunnel vision. It's rooted in forgetfulness and tunnel vision. This is readily apparent when you read Exodus chapter 15 as a whole. The first 21 verses, I encourage you to read them this afternoon. Exodus 21, excuse me, Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, and then just keep going into verses 22, 23, and 24. The first 21 verses of Exodus chapter 15, we haven't read them, are two songs of amazement and worship and adoration for God's glory in delivering the people of Israel through the Red Sea. The people of Israel are astounded. They are amazed. They are so thankful for how God has shown up. And then you get two verses later, three verses later. And they're grumbling and complaining about God because of their circumstances. They have forgotten God's faithfulness. Their circumstances have gotten larger than God and his past actions on their behalf. In the exact same way, in Exodus chapter 17, when the people of Israel are complaining about not having water, all the while God is providing for them day after day after day with the manna, they have tunnel vision. They're refusing to see God at work in their entire lives. They're so focused on this one circumstance rather than seeing God's faithfulness in their entire lives. When we grumble, when we complain, it comes from a place of forgetfulness. Not remembering God's faithfulness yesterday and the day before and the day before. It comes from a place of not thinking about God is revealing himself to be faithful in our lives today. That the God who is faithful in this area will be faithful in this area as well. Grumbling comes from a place of forgetfulness and from tunnel vision. Third, in trying circumstances, we will either trust the Lord or test the Lord. If 
you notice here in Exodus 15, 16, and 17, these stories are called tests. The people of Israel test God. And God is testing Israel. How will Israel respond to this test? Will they trust God or will they test him by complaining about him? Have you ever considered that God is doing the same thing to you? That when you find yourself in circumstances that you don't like, in trying circumstances, when you are forced to interact with trying people, when things are not the way that you would have done them, that you are being given an opportunity from God to trust him or to test him. When you find yourself in trying circumstances or with trying people, you don't need to be content and passive, but you need to be content with God's sovereignty. You can actively seek to change your circumstances. You should bring those complaints to God. And yet what makes a complaint a holy complaint and not an accusatory grumble is when we trust God, not accuse him. When we trust God to intervene and to work on his timetable and we wait on him rather than saying, God, you haven't done this right. Will we trust God or test God in trying circumstances? Finally, the key to overcoming grumbling is gratitude. Nothing kills grumbling and complaining like being active and intentional and expressing thanksgiving to God for what he has done. Each and every day, every single day, we should build a habit into our lives of pausing and reflecting on God's faithfulness. Even or especially when our circumstances are hard and challenging to reflect on God's faithfulness. We would do well right before bed. Turn the phone off Turn your TV off, turn your tablet off, whatever. Put the book down if you're someone who reads right before bed and just take three, four, five minutes and think. Think about what God has done, how God has shown himself faithful, how God has been at work in this day, even when the circumstances are challenging. It might be hard. You might have to pray something like this. Lord, today has been such a tough day. It's not gone at all the way that I thought it would be or, or wanted it to be. It's so easy for me to, to think about all the things that didn't go well, all of the frustrating conversations, all of the circumstances that give me pain, all of the things that didn't happen on my timetable. And yet through it all, I just want to say thank you. Thank you because even when I don't sense it, I know your word remains true and faithful, that you say you will never leave me or forsake me, and I, I know that's true. Thank you, God, that, that even when my heart condemns me because of how I've acted or responded in these circumstances, that your word says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for how you have shown yourself faithful then and how you are faithful today. Help me as you are at work, as I long for you to be at work and changing my circumstances. Help me, God, to wait on you to do just that.
That focus on gratitude is actually what Paul has in mind in Philippians chapter two. He's writing to the church in Philippi. He's talking about how they are to work out their salvation in fear and trembling, not as a way to earn salvation from God, but instead as a way to give God much glory in their maturity, bearing fruit of righteousness for the sake of Christ. And in the midst of this, Paul uses the wilderness generation as an example of what not to be. Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul writes these words from prison. He doesn't know if he is going to be executed for his faith or not. He's facing an uncertain future and he says, you know what, I'm able to rejoice. I'm able to rejoice because of what God has done for me. I am able to rejoice because of how God is at work in you and I want you to join me in rejoicing as well. Rejoicing or this expression of gratitude is the key to overcoming our grumbling. And did you notice what happens when we do that? Not just in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, but what happens when we do that, we be, when we become a people of gratitude rather than grumbling? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When you swap grumbling for gratitude, you're going to stand out. You are going to shine like stars in the blackness of a world that thrives on complaining and on grumbling. That's what I hope every single one of us latches onto here as we consider this charge to move from grumbling into gratitude. That God's people shine brightly when we are known for gratitude and not for grumbling. You are going to shine brightly when you are known as a person of gratitude in your home, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your community, when you're known as a person of gratitude and not as a person of grumbling. What if we took Paul's words here seriously? What if we saw grumbling and complaining for what they actually are in God's eyes? Not just something that's, you know, something we probably shouldn't do, a bad habit, relatively harmless, something everyone else is doing, but instead as an accusation directed at God that says, God, you don't know what you're doing. If you did, life sure would be different for me. Instead, what if we saw our charge to be people as a people of gratitude? people who express thanksgiving for all that God has done, even in the midst of hard and trying circumstances. If we did that, we would shine in the darkness of our generation. Let's pray. God, we, we ask for help. Complaining is the air we breathe. So we ask that you would be merciful to us, that you would help us to be people of gratitude, to be intentional in seeing you at work, 
seeing how much we have to be thankful for, to rejoice even in the midst of trying circumstances. That when we find ourselves in hardship, to bring those circumstances to you, not accusing you, but rather, than tr- rather trusting in you, that you are able to intervene, you are able to save us, you are able to deliver us, and, and that we would wait on you. God, we ask for your help, your grace, and your mercy. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.